Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People. The Constitution matters and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Glad to be bringing you what we call the American view of law and government. That is the view of our founders. And that view is clearly set forth in the Declaration of Independence. Three main points. First of all, there is a creator God and by that, they were referring to the God of the Bible, not some other, you know, idol or deity. There is a creator God. Secondly, our rights come from him and from him alone. And a third point, very important to remember, is that the only purpose for human civil government is to protect and secure those God-given rights. Nothing more than that is what civil government is supposed to be doing. And so the design of our constitutional republic was to create a federal system of government between the states, that is the states agree to uh, surrender certain powers to the federal government in order that the federal government could protect the God-given rights of we, the people, particularly in those areas where the state governments had said, you know, this would be a better job for the federal government for to handle war and to handle uh, peace treaties or uh, trade agreements with other nations, all those sorts of things that would be better handled by the federal government than the state governments and their design was that all the other powers are retained by the state governments well we're in the midst of a, a series where we're looking at what would be a way in which we could change and alter we're preserving some aspects of it and changing other aspects of it uh, our current constitution to get back to that original design because clearly when we look at washington dc what is being done today is so far beyond the boundaries uh, designed by our our, uh, our our founders, so far beyond the boundaries of uh, the design of our founders and, and actually violative in many, many cases now, violative of the exact purpose for which civil government was created to protect our God given rights. And the result is we, we have a, a tyranny, a growing tyranny, uh, a tyranny perhaps some would argue that was is as uh, impactful as King George III's tyranny. And we have a federal government that uh, basically doesn't care. It doesn't care that it violates the Constitution. It doesn't care that the agencies that it creates uh, abuse their powers on a daily basis. And in, in many ways, we can see that the current system is broken. Broken, and our argument is broken to a point where repairing it by a few pieces here or a few pieces there uh, doesn't look realistic. Uh, broken to a point where we uh, say that uh, freedom and liberty, true freedom and liberty, are imperiled by what is happening. And uh, uh, you can look at any of the agencies of the federal government and see whether it's the IRS, perhaps that's the most abusive of, of those uh, three-letter agencies, but there's plenty of others that are uh, equally abusive, EPA, and on and on the list goes of our federal government way outside the bounds. So this thought experiment, because we know that to actually accomplish uh, restoring a Republican form of government, as Republican small r, the form of government, not the party. But to restore that is going to take a, a, a task where a grassroots movement of Americans who understand the purpose of government and who desire to see our return to that form of government, that has to take place. And perhaps the big uh, barrier in that way is that there's so many people dependent upon the federal largesse, whether they receive a paycheck directly from that government or whether uh, they are on a social security uh, plan or their Medicare or thousands of other ways in which they have become dependent upon this government that is now outside the boundaries. Well, that's a big, big discussion we'll have to have as to what, what ways can we step through that problem? Uh, because indeed, those who are beneficiaries of this system 
obviously they don't want to see the system change. Uh, they want to keep it running the way it is. But I think uh, we could see that financially it's running directly into the ground. And uh, that means it cannot last forever. So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning about the executive branch and this new proposed constitution? Generations of school children have been brought up to admire strong presidents by historians and teachers. Rarely do such sources praise a president for defending a constitution against the majority, according to the presidential oath of office. Typically, strong presidents are recognized for their actions in going beyond the constitution. In other words, strong presidents break the law. Presidents, presidents break the law, and particularly constitutional law. Candidates for the presidency often promise to violate the Constitution and are rewarded by an ignorant electorate for their candor. The idea of violating the Constitution has been driven so deeply into our culture that even the leaders of faith communities have participated in its corruption. For example, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops otherwise known as the USCCB, publishes Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship every four years to synchronize with presidential campaigns. Catholic parishes have been encouraged to, dis, uh, to disseminate, but not critique, uh, it among Catholics. Never mind that the 2007 publication contained 36 recommended violations of the Constitution of the United States. After all, the Catholic Church's role as a teacher of moral principles takes precedence over constitutional law. True enough, except the Catholic American Catholic bishops were remarkably silent on the immorality of slavery in the United States during the 19th century, in spite of earlier popes having taken the first stand against slavery by a faith community. Forming consciences is your typical propaganda piece having a thin pro-life veneer covering an obesity of collectivist programs that make a mockery of the Catholic principle of free will. The thinness of the veneer can be seen after all the predictable anti-abortion recommendations were made. The bishops made it clear that promoting and participating in the war on Iraq was a matter of individual judgment and not a moral issue. In other words, let us not have abortion in the United States. But it was all right to cheer the shock and all fireworks in Baghdad that killed both mother-to-be and the infant in her womb because she had been walking down that city sidewalks when the fireworks began. The very idea of forming consciences is elitist and insulting. Catholic bishops do not form consciences like placing clay in receptacles called Catholic believers. The Catholic Church's mission is to teach a consistent moral code such that individual Catholics might form their own consciences. Isn't that what free will is supposed to be about? All of this is in stark contrast to the role of the civil executive as it emerged in the 17th and 18th centuries. Before then, strong executives dominated, with some notable exceptions. They would continue to do so, uh, do so well into the 19th century. The first crack in this dominance came with the Glorious Revolution in 1688, which raised William and Mary to power. The Glorious Revolution permanently established Parliament as the ruling power of England. The role of the King and the Queen was to execute the will of the people as expressed through their representatives in Congress. The elevation of William and Mary took place during the long reign of Louis XIV in the most centralized state in Europe, France. Cardinals of the Catholic Church, to include Richelieu, Mazarin, and Fleury, 
became chief ministers to the governments of Louis XIII through uh, the XV in a period in which the French Catholic hierarchy was more state than church. That would lead to a violent reaction at the demise of Louis XVI and the French Revolution. Into this cauldron of political interests, Baron Montesquieu published his classic, The Spirit of Laws in 1748, toward the end of Louis XV's reign. The book was a product of Montesquieu's um, thinking, taking the grand tour of Europe to include Austria and England. Montesquieu admired the English constitutional monarchy system of government, but he was not the first philosopher to do so. John Locke had published his two treatises of government in 1690, supporting this new form of government. Locke's focus, however, was on individual liberty and the limited executive power of kings. Montesquieu was more concerned with the structure of government and his separation of powers into legislative, executive, and judicial functions, strongly guiding uh, the, founding the founding generation of the United States as the Constitution of 1787 was drafted. The essence of that separation was that the legislative branch of government represented the will of people. And the role of the executive branch was to execute legitimate law created by the legislative branch. That concept, of course, is a complete contradiction to the modern concept of a strong president exercising powers outside of a constitution. Article 5 of a new constitution, corresponding to Article 2 of the Constitution of 1787, returns to Montesquieu's view of the separation of powers. Its models of good presidents are Grover Cleveland and the much maligned Warren Harding, who refused to violate the Constitution rather than the freebooting Roosevelt's and Lyndon B. Johnson. Let's talk a little bit about the limits of presidential power in a new Constitution. Article 5 has modified Article 2 of the Constitution of 1787 to constrain the president and the branch of government over which the president exerts power uh, to uh, ex executing legitimate law. The president may refuse to take action based upon unconstitutional statutory law consistent with the presidential oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. This is the strongest oath described in the Constitution of 1787 and is preserved in a new Constitution. In this sense, the role of a strong president is preserved, but the power is not to extend the, the power of the president beyond constitutional boundaries. Should a president use this power arbitrarily, Congress still retains the power of impeachment. Let's look at Article 5, Section 1 of the new Constitution. Section 1 is modified to read as follows. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the vice president chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for president and vice president, one of them, one of whom, at least, shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. They shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president, and in distinct ballots the person voted for as vice president, and they shall make distinct lists of all persons voted for as president, and of all persons voted for as vice president, and, uh, and of the number of votes for each, which list that they shall sign and certify, transmit seal to the seat of the government of the United States, directed to the president of the Senate, the president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all certificates and votes shall then be counted, 
the person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be president if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if no person have such a uh, majority, then from persons having the highest numbers, not exceeding three on the list of those voted for as president, the House of Representatives shall choose immediately by ballot the president. But in choosing the president's vote shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote, a quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two thirds of the states and a majority of the states shall be necessary to a choice. And if the House of Representatives shall not choose a president, whenever the right of choice shall devolve upon them, for the 4th of March next following, then the Vice President shall act as President, as in case of the death or other constitutional disability of the President. The person having the greatest number of votes as Vice President shall be the Vice President. If such number be a majority, the whole number of electors appointed, and if no person have a majority, then from the two highest numbers on the list, the Senate shall choose the Vice President. A quorum for the purpose shall consist of two-thirds, the whole members whole uh, number of senators and a majority of the whole number uh, shall be necessary to a choice. But no person constitutionally ineligible to the president, to the office of president, shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. This is the language of Amendment 12 of the Constitution of the United States, and it illustrates one of the strengths of our new Constitution. It would no longer be necessary to read the original text, the amended text, and then assume what text replaces uh, what text. Locally, the text of Amendment 22 of the Constitution of 1787 would follow in Section 1 of the new Constitution. No person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected. The president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. Um, <clears throat> But this article shall not apply to any person holding the office of president when this article was proposed by the Congress and shall not prevent any person who may be holding the office of president or acting as president during the term within which this article becomes operative from holding the office of president or acting as president during the remainder of such term. The next provision is modified because Congress should not be dictating to the states that uh, have created them. The Council of States may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. The following provision tightens the definition of a natural born citizen to make it consistent with the law of nations. No person except a natural born citizen of the United States shall be eligible to the office of president. <clears throat> Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained the age of 35 years and 14 years a resident within the United States. To be natural born, a candidate's natural parents must both have been citizens of the United States. The next provision replaces the abrogated language of the basic constitution with the language of Amendment 25. <clears throat> In case of the removal of the president from office or his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. Whenever the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate and Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, <clears throat> and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, 
such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Thereafter, when the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, his written declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive department or such other body of the Council of States may by law provide, transmit within four days to the president, pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue, assembling within 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session. If the Congress within 21 days after receipt of the uh, latter written declaration, <clears throat> or if Congress is not in session within 21 days after Congress is required to assemble, determines by two-thirds vote of both houses that the President is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the Vice President shall continue to discharge the same as acting President. Otherwise, the President shall resume the powers and duties of his office. <clears throat> The next two provisions from section one of the current constitution would be retained. The president shall at stated times receive for his services a compensation, which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected. And he shall not receive within that, that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. Before he enter into the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or, <coughs> pardon me, um, oath or uh, affirmation I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will do, I will, to the best of my uh, ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. It was earlier mentioned the importance of the presidential oath, but it should have special significance under a new Constitution. Recall that under this Constitution, a president would no longer retain veto, veto power. That is consistent with the principle of representative government in which the representatives of the people, Congress in the case of the United States, make the laws. Article 6 of the current Constitution describes the oath of office taken by members of Congress and by all federal and state officials. <clears throat> the senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers both of the United States and of the several states shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. It is difficult to find a more tepid term than support to describe the responsibilities of these officials to the Constitution of the United States. What burden does that place on these officials to prevent the official copy of the Constitution from end, uh, ending on a burn pile with other literary works about liberty, such as Locke's Second Treatise of Government, the Mayflower Compact, and the Declaration of Independence? Compare that passive verb with the more active verbs, preserve, protect, and defend. A mother bear preserves, protects, and defends her cubs. She doesn't just support them if they get into conflict with other animals. A new constitution would remove the president's power to arbitrarily nullify legislation. 
It redirects that energy into its proper constitutional channel. The president will still be able to nullify unconstitutional legislation by refusing to execute it. If Congress disagrees, it may challenge a president's decision through the impeachment process. Impeachment, in turn, should have a greater focus on constitutionality and less upon pure prof, uh, politics. Mm-hmm. Amen, amen to that, Phil. And I particularly appreciate you going after elements of our current constitution that have contributed, I guess you could say, to what some are now calling the imperial presidency. That is, the way the president functions in his office is, eh, he can do pretty much anything he chooses, as if there's no limit to his power. He wants to go to war? Well, yeah, he, could, he wants to spend money on this or that. He has virtually unlimited power. Uh, there's there's some small minor limits that still exist, but they're very, very minor compared to uh, what our founders envisioned. And our founders, by the way, never envisioned an imperial presidency. Maybe, maybe Alexander Hamilton did. And by the way, you look at Alexander Hamilton's speech that uh, he delivered on the floor of the convention there in 1780, uh, 1787, and that speech is basically talking about an imperial type of presidency, almost a monarchy uh, that, uh, you know, he might even pass on to uh, someone of, of his choosing. So anyway, but that's Alexander Hamilton. He, he would be the exception. Uh, all the other founders, they had experienced tyranny in the hand of the executive branch under King George III, and they were not about to re- replace the tyranny of King George III with the tyranny of George Washington uh, or any, any other president who would be elected. Um, and so it is it's extremely important that we uh, structure this new constitution in a way that the president cannot get outside the very clear boundaries that are established uh, uh, by this new constitution. And by the way, I appreciate your you're talking about what the Catholic Church has done in, in terms of uh, forming consciences for faithful citizenship, doing the uh, uh, work, I guess, the heavy lifting of uh, socialists and uh, others who are uh, rejecting our form of government. And uh, I guess there's m- many other ways, particularly with Catholic charities uh, being paid, I understand, hundreds of millions of dollars to bring illegal aliens in and get them settled all over the United States. So they're being paid to, in my view, undermine our, uh, our safety and our security here in these United States. And there's plenty of criticism to go around for uh, religious institutions doing things destructive of our constitutional republic. My own uh, denomination, Evangelical Free Church, I understand that I didn't, I wasn't aware of this till just a, a month or two ago, that um, many of the churches are receiving federal grant money, federal grant money given to a church to do what, you know, soup kitchens or other things. I'm not exactly sure what each of those grants involve, but wait a minute, there seems to be a violation of the very principle uh, of the First Amendment that says, there's a separation of jurisdiction, a separation of power. But if the church is receiving money, whether it's Catholic charities getting money to settle immigrants around the country or uh, our denomination getting to run soup kitchens, that's a string of control, a string of power over that particular church, which means if you're going to continue to receive the federal funds, well, you're going to jump to whatever your puppet master tells you to do. So if the puppet master says, hey, you've got to close your churches, so we're going to do that because if we don't do what our master tells us to do, we will find out those funds that we're relying upon are cut off and uh, uh, we lose that, those kind of uh, abilities to do things with the, with the budget that we're depending on the federal government for. So that, that creates a huge problem in my mind because uh, if 
the churches are to be the conscience of the community, which is odd that they talk about forming consciences, but indeed the church should be the conscience of the community, uh, calling people back to the standard of God's law as a standard by which right and wrong needs to be measured and by which civil government ne itself needs to be reined in. Well, how's that going to work if the church simply becomes a puppet on the end of a string of the federal government or other cases of uh, the state government. That's a huge problem for discussion, but uh, uh, that whole idea of, of the separate jurisdiction of the church government from the jurisdiction of uh, the state government, I think is something that needs to be uh, needs to be clearly maintained. So thank you for pointing that out, because I, I was not aware that that was uh, what was going on with, with the uh, Catholic Church in terms of each presidential election. Now, those limits that you set out for uh, the president are absolutely vital. Uh, and uh, when one of my questions as we do this, and this is probably a second level question, not, not necessarily in the text of the Constitution, is what will happen at the transition point from one government to the next government? That is the government under the uh, current Constitution to the government under a new constitution. And, and the reason I raise that question is that uh, uh, in, in one of the provisions here, uh, where we were speaking about uh, actually quoting from uh, Article uh, Amendment 22, uh, it talks about that uh, the term when the term which this article becomes operative from holding the office of president. So it's talking about the 22nd Amendment, when the 22nd Amendment went into effect, uh, if that effect went in before uh, a person's elected, of course, that, if, that 22nd Amendment is going to apply to them. But if it went into effect in the middle of someone's term in the office of president or someone acting as president, uh, then what happens in the result of that? So I'm not sure that language of our Amendment 22, how we work that out when we talk about the transition from the current constitution to uh, a new constitution and what happens to the existing government. But that's, a, I know, really a second, a second level kind of question uh, that, uh, that needs to be addressed uh, and not necessarily in, in the text of the constitution itself. So we'll relegate that to uh, that, that's, uh, uh, that second question. So uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative that you make absolutely clear something that was so clear in the mind of our founders, the definition of a natural born citizen. They all knew what that meant. Uh, the evidence is they had the copy of the Law of Nations at their disposal. Benjamin Franklin had made it available to them at their disposal. So when they were debating and talking about it, uh, the, the Law of Nations, that book by Emmerich Vatal was available to them. And I believe that they were relying upon that book and its definition of a natural born citizen. And so when they said president must be a natural born citizen of the United States, they were clearly stating that standard that to be a natural born citizen, both parents of the candidate for president, both parents must be citizens of the United States. And I guess I might add a, a little qualifying uh, phrase there at the time of the candidate's birth. That is uh, somebody like uh, Marco Rubio, I understand his parents were not citizens of the United States at the moment of his birth. In fact, I believe they were in Canada and he was born in Canada and neither neither of them were citizens at the time of his birth. But subsequent to that, they immigrated to the United States and they have since become citizens. Well, that's a kind of ex post facto factor to say, well, yeah, they weren't citizens when he was born, but now they are citizens. So um, I, I think it would be wise, Phil, to kind of uh, put that qualifier in to the end of that phrase that uh, to be a natural born citizen candidates, natural parents must uh, both have been citizens of the United States at the birth 
of the candidate for president. Uh, that might help clarify that, which uh, I think the example of Marco Rubio is, is but one of uh, several people who've been running for president recently uh, that uh, really don't meet that standard, including, of course, Barack Obama, whose father never became a citizen of the United States at any point in time uh, in his life. But appreciate that being being uh, uh, stated clearly, because quite clearly, most of the people in America don't understand that, which is why they pulled the lever for Barack Obama when he was not qualified by the standard of our founders, because both of his parents uh, were not citizens of uh, the United States. So uh, the other factor that I just thought about when uh, we were walking through the 25th Amendment, and interesting, the 25th Amendment we know arose out of a, a terrible situation where Woodrow Wilson had a stroke toward the end of his second term, and he was definitely incapacitated, but uh, his family, particularly his wife, covered that up so that she kind of became the one who was manipulating things, signing bills in his now, doing all sorts of things, acting as president, hiding the fact that he was really disabled from the stroke and was not able to function as president. So all those uh, factors as to what happens when the president is not able to function, what are the uh, uh, different ways in which that can be addressed? And I think the 25th Amendment does a, a number of uh, very good ways in which that can be addressed. And like. Uh, thought about this that I don't have an answer to at this point in time is I know that there was a movement during Trump's term, his first term of, we don't know whether he'll have a second term or not, but there was a movement to declare and use the 25th Amendment to declare that President Trump was incompetent because of insanity. That's what I, I remember hearing them say that he's clearly insane and we've got we've to put him out of position and, and uh, you know put uh, Pence in his place here as vice president. Uh, so there's various groupings and the groupings are also left open to, uh, you know, it's not just the House of Representatives in the Senate, um, but other uh, officials in his cabinet um, and all of those. And uh, so I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just not sure that uh, those groups should be the ones um, that determine whether the, the president is competent. Perhaps uh, the Council of the States is the one body that should make that determination. Obviously, if the president himself is able to say, look, I'm I, I, like President Reagan after you know he was shot, sent into the hospital, uh, incapacitated for some time as he recovered from that uh, assassination attempt. Obviously, you know, if he was able to sign a document and said, yes, I am, I am incapacitated, have the vice president take the, the role of president during my uh, time of recuperation. Uh, but uh, we have a, a president, uh, you know, currently Biden, I guess the resident of the White House there that uh, clearly has mental deficiencies going on and uh, has all kinds of things. I kind of think uh, we see what's taking place there is elder abuse. <laughs> That's right. You're putting an elderly person in jeopardy for their uh, for somebody else's well-being or somebody else pulling the strings behind him. Some people say it's Obama. I'm not sure if that's the case or Obama plus a bunch of others. But uh, clearly somebody whose mental competency is uh, is is very questionable uh, and obviously is not uh, in control of some of his faculties. So that's important that we have the 25th Amendment guarding against a, a, a president who really cannot function uh, in, in the, the capacity that he's supposed to be functioning. And, uh, you know, opening, the other question I had is about opening of the electoral college ballots. And uh, the vice president under our current constitution is the one who does open that. In fact, that was what the whole uh, uh, January 6th protests at, at Washington were about. They, uh, those coming to protest were urging President Pence to reject ballots until an investigation had been done in those states where there were 
there's clear fraud of Pennsylvania being one of those which violated its own constitution. I understand, Phil, what you said repeatedly violated its own constitution and how it conducted that election. So, you know, obviously there should be some questions as to whether, you know, the Electoral College votes of Pennsylvania were valid. Uh, shouldn't there be an investigation? And so the uh, attempt of, uh, I think, Trump's speech on January 6th, as well as those protesters, was to say, wait a minute, let's at least pause and do an investigation before just opening the ballots willy-nilly and accepting all the ballots as they are. So I'm scratching my head because I don't really have a good answer to this. Obviously, the vice president serves as the president of the Senate. So in that respect, he would be the natural one to, uh, to make this decision. But perhaps there needs to be something from the Council of the States that would uh, uh, be a check upon that power of the vice president to make a decision about opening the ballots. And uh, some would say, well, that's never happened before. And that's inaccurate. At the close of the 19th century, there was a case where there was questions about fraud in, in uh, various state elections. And so questions about the validity of the Electoral College votes. And there was a pause taken. They actually said, let's wait until we can do an investigation to determine if the the election in these states was actually rigged or was it valid and uh, was there things done that uh, we don't want to accept and we want to force those states like pennsylvania i believe should have been forced to go back and follow its constitution regarding its election of the president and and the ballots basically cast aside and say that was not a valid election you got to have a do-over and yes, there may be a time delay then in terms of when uh, uh, the inauguration of the president can take place. But I believe it's better to do that than to have what most Americans, I believe, the majority of Americans, I believe today, uh, think that this fraud that took place in the 2020 uh, election is uh, is very provable and uh, should should not have uh, been allowed to go forward uh, to where we are at today uh, with the kind of illegitimate uh, presidency of uh, Mr. Biden. So I don't know, Phil, if you have any, any thoughts on, on those those items that uh, I've mentioned. Well, concerning uh, what happens during transition, um, this, of course, is just one issue of transition. Can you imagine what the transition issue, uh, how complex it gets when we start to talk about Medicare uh, and Social Security benefits and so forth? I mean, this is an immense subject. And so the way I've, I've gone at this, probably very cowardly, is to completely put a huge wall between uh, a new constitution and separate uh, transition issues because okay. yeah. an entire transition uh, plan must be created. Yeah, so that's, okay. a, that's a project down the road then, yes. Yes. Um, yes, we're, we're definitely in agreement about the natural born citizen. Um, this becomes very explicit. And it does eliminate the possibility of, of one of the parents of being a, a non-citizen. And really, when you think of the importance of the job of the president of the United States, uh, what they, the founders were talking about was that they wanted a, a family environment in which the individual had the maximum opportunity to learn the traditions of the nation. And so that's why this, this uh, uh, barrier would be that high. The one thing that you are, are really attempting to prevent is this concept of, of the uh, anchor babies. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Which is completely in conflict with the, the original intent of the Constitution. Um, let's say uh, the, the 25th Amendment about incompetence. Um, there's probably more that we need to, to expand on there. And I don't know whether that's going to be done at the first level or should be done at the second level. But clearly, uh, 
a large sector of the population would look at the current presidency of Joseph Biden. And uh, there, there's a great deal of suspicion that he is mentally incompetent to play the role. Now, others would have uh, additional uh, reservations about the individual before he reached that stage, but that's another matter, I believe. And let's see, as far as the uh, Electoral College votes are concerned, um, yes, everything must be done to prevent fraud at the Electoral College level. Uh, as a Pennsylvanian, I followed the issue about the, uh, uh, the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania not allowing um, the, the uh, kind of voting that was done here in Pennsylvania. So uh, that has to be spelled out. How much is spelled out at the first level? How much at the second level? That, of course, is a question. But nonetheless, um, this is terribly important. And how we could stand uh, people um, you know, creating this, this illusion that those who question elections are somehow treasonous. That's ridiculous. I don't know oh, where yes. that logic comes from mm -hmm. at all. And uh, the power, uh, maybe this is a second level kind of definition uh, regarding the power of whoever, if it, if it is a vice president, that's fine. Uh, however, vice president might be a, a little conflict of interest there because, uh, you know, uh, uh, his role. But uh, anyway, that beside the point, if, if it is the vice president, does he have the power? And I guess this is the question I'd like to see answered maybe at the secondary level. Does he have the power to say, we call a halt to this process of counting these electoral college votes because of uh, strong suspicions of fraud that have been conducted in some of the state elections? So uh, that it, because there was many people, I think, including Pence himself, who said, well, I don't have the power to do that. I, I can't stop the process. It's, I'm just there as a, you know, like a secretary. I open the mail and that's all it amounts to. I just open the mail. I don't get the question whether the mail is valid or legitimate. And uh, I know some of those states where there's a there was a debate about validity, uh, there was a second set of electors and those electors uh, also submitted ballots. And this, you know, creates a big, uh, big controversy then like, well, when they got two sets of electoral college votes, uh, yeah, which one is the valid one? And, uh, you know, it seems to me that Mike Pence just chose the party line telling him, this is what you got to do. You don't have any choice. And I think it would be valuable to to spell that out, that whether it's the vice president or whether it's the, the council of states, whoever has that position, they're not just simply the secretary opening the mail. They have the, the duty to uh, uh, guard this electoral process that if they believe there is reasonable cause that fraud has been conducted, which I, I use Pennsylvania because it's so clearly against your state constitution that uh, the, that, can, uh, that election was conducted, that it's like, well, obviously this is not a valid election. So uh, we need to go back to square one and either redo the election or somehow throw uh, the electoral votes of Pennsylvania away and Pennsylvania doesn't get to count in the electoral college vote, which I think most people would say, oh, no, 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 that's too much of a nuclear option. Let's count Pennsylvania, but let's force Pennsylvania to do a legitimate election according to its state constitution before we accept uh, those electoral college votes. So you agree that that's, that's something that ought to be more carefully defined? Absolutely. Um, and I think a way to do this might be to address that second level uh, because at the second level, you can have all kinds of examples of uh, fraud. Uh, you can't, you cannot eliminate all possible fraud. Uh, uh, you can't cover all of them. 
uh, in a document like that. And so you have to have some kind of a way to get the, for somebody to have the power to say, no, no, uh, that is fraud. Uh, we're not going to go down that, that road. Uh, I believe that uh, the appropriate body is the Council of States. Ultimately, they are the ones who act as the board of directors, the overseers of the contract among the states to create a federal uh, entity, governing entity. So that's, that's basically where it should happen. And I think sequentially, if we go at this at the second level first, we may detect some first level language that could be inserted at that, that first level. And that would be a, a useful way to go about this, this uh, challenge. Right. And so perhaps uh, rather than the president of the Senate, uh, we would say the Council of the States in place of that. And yeah, that, that would make sense there because uh, that puts it in there. And, and again, because they are representing each of their states, all 50 states would have a say in the matter. And I dare say many states would say, wait a minute, Pennsylvania, we've got a problem with you. You want your you want your electoral college votes counted. But the majority of us here say, no, 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 not so fast, not so fast. We see fraud there. We see fraud in Georgia. We see fraud in, you know, Arizona. The rest of the states would have more incentive, I think, than the vice president who uh, may be looking to his political future, you know, running for president. We know Pence is always hungered after being president and that kind of thing. So uh, his his decision may have really had more to do with pandering to the political process of what uh, would get his his career advancement rather than saying, hey, no, 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 what, what is just, what is right, what is constitutional? And I, I remember Pence saying, I have no constitutional authority to do this. I can't stop this process. I'm just the secretary opening the mail. This is essentially what he was saying. Um, he didn't use, I'm paraphrasing, he didn't use those words, just the secretary opening the mail, but that's essentially how he functioned. I don't question anything. I just do whatever I'm told. And I think that, um, you know, that sadly is, is the case of too many of the, uh, elected officials, as well as obviously the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., uh, they, they care not one whit about the Constitution, nor do they care at all about preserving the God-given rights of we the people. They're just doing what benefits them, which is to get reelected and to move up the ladder in terms of their political career. And, and uh, you know, those sort of advancements are really what they're living for, not fulfilling the duty that uh, our founders said was to protect the God-given rights of, of we the people. Well, I certainly agree with you. And let's reflect on the major change in, well, it's one of the major changes um, in a new constitution versus the current constitution of 1787. And that is to limit the, the functions of the president to those that are strictly limited to the uh, executing the will of the people as expressed through their representatives. Um, we have seen presidents through executive actions go well, well beyond um, their, their assigned powers, uh, particularly in the, the Nisei case. I mean, that was just absolutely absurd. Now let's train our attention on the vice president. How do we view the vice president versus the, the president? Uh, I think we view the vice president as assuming all of the powers of the presidency under a succession situation. Uh, but no more. The, the vice president should have no more than the president uh, had before. So it, I think it makes a lot of sense to to uh, really have the overseers come in, step in in a situation like this, and uh, determine the outcome of the of an election. And given that uh, you know we've seen a, a stolen, what many of us believe is a stolen election there in 2020. Um, 
I know that many are, are saying that we're already seeing signs that they're, you know, preparing to steal 2024. Uh, so if we don't have honest elections, we don't have a, a government. We just got a, well, I, I guess I would call it a mafia. Uh, a group of criminals who have conspired together and formed a racketeering and corruption organization in order to accomplish what they want. And uh, what they want is obviously to strip us of our God-given rights, as they uh, are successfully doing in so many, so many respects. But when we look at the possibility that this next election is going to be stolen, uh, I'm praying, praying that, uh, you know, God would grant us mercy, uh, that uh, we would be able to avoid this happening a second time. However, we already see that, you know, the, the game being played to try to uh, put Trump in prison so that he can't run for office. Now, I'm not absolutely certain that he couldn't run for office from prison. I mean, I know that there was a governor uh, running, uh, individual running for governor of the state of Ohio back during the war, war between the states. And he ran from exile because uh, the 16th president illegally uh, exiled this citizen and, uh, you know, forced him out of the country. And so uh, he was in Toronto, but uh, his party chose him as their their, their man for governor. He did not win the race ultimately, but uh, he ran for governor from exile. So maybe it's possible to run for president from prison. I, d I don't know. <laughs> but it, it is quite clear that uh, the federal government in most of its branches uh, and agencies has been weaponized and it's simply become a political tool. The FBI clearly is being used as a political tool against enemies of Biden, political enemies of Biden. So uh, that that level of corruption that we're seeing is uh, really shows the end of a constitutional republic, the worst end you could possibly come to. Well, I think there's a principle here, and that is uh, you cannot have a federal government police itself. The uh, We must give the federal government the opportunity to police itself. That's, that's a distinction, but you can't give them the final power. And ultimately, um, it's the states that created the, the contract that we call uh, the Constitution. And it's got to be the, the states through their council of, of uh, states that makes the de uh, final determination in issues like this. Amen. Because uh, if the states lose their power to check uh, the, the federal government, then we're going to be right back where we are exactly right now. Uh, and I would argue since the war between the states, what has happened is uh, less and less and less areas of freedom and liberty have been preserved, that uh, we have the federal government encroaching increasingly upon, first of all, the powers of the state governments and stripping those states of their, and then now it comes down to the powers of we, the people, the citizens. I mean, to have the FBI raiding homes that like happened there in Pennsylvania of somebody who was simply a pro-life uh, advocate and uh, who stood out in front of an abortion clinic and, and uh, you know, used their First Amendment rights to speak against the evil of abortion and to have them raided by a whole SWAT team of FBI goons uh, who care nothing about the law and obviously are just running roughshod over the law. This Sunday in church, we had uh, a friend of ours who's going to be standing trial next April uh, for violations of the so-called Freedom of Access to Clinics uh, Act, the FACE Act. And uh, Biden has already used that to throw about nine uh, pro-lifers in jail in D.C. And one of those, a friend of ours, was put into solitary confinement, which is a really a form of torture because she's pro-life, because she believes that the precious baby in the womb ought to be preserved. We have a, a government going after every one of its opponents on, on issues, not only life, but the 
the other issues as well. The FBI was saying that parents who come to the uh, school board meeting and say, hey, we object to our children being in, uh, indoctrinated with LGBT uh, propaganda. That's not what schools are supposed to be doing. And our children shouldn't be exposed to pornography. These people are being treated by the FBI as if they are domestic terrorists, labeled as domestic terrorists. So we have a FBI that I believe needs to be completely abolished. And I, I don't know if we write a second level of uh, uh, instructions in, in a constitution we propose that there are no such uh, police powers available to the federal government uh, uh, unless it's, it's so constrained to such a minor number of things that we let the states be uh, the police force because those those police forces can be under the people where clearly the FBI is not under the people or, or even serving the people any longer. You know, I've been a, uh, a protester at an anti-abortion uh, uh, clinic and the, at the specific clinic where uh, a deceased friend of ours um, has been uh, uh, captured by the police and put into county prison on multiple occasions. And I noted the, the behavior of all of the protesters. Yes. They were bringing attention to the fact that there was a, a live person in the womb of the mother. Um, and it was all, you know, the freedom to publish, the freedom to, to speak and so forth. But I didn't see people denying access to the clinic. I mean, the individuals that were targeted with messages, for example, had ample opportunity to enter the clinic. Nobody was nobody was forcing them uh, to stop, and you know to to claim with face so called face uh, legislation that these people are denying access to health care. Begin with it's not health care. <laughs> right. even, even if it were, yeah. it's absurd. I yeah. mean, it's you, you've stretched you've stretched the definition to absurdity. And and that's really what we see on every level that the meaning of words is being uh, twisted beyond belief. Uh, and therefore, the meaning of the words of the Constitution, likewise, have been twisted beyond belief to uh, basically create a, a system of government where you do not have your God-given rights protected by the government. And it really, that's the goal of the left, as I see it, that their aim is a totalitarian dictatorship like uh, Joseph Stalin or, or uh, you know, uh, Castro in Cuba or Maduro in Venezuela, on and on the list goes of these tyrants who do not protect or respect the God-given rights of the people. And so their every action, when they gain power, their every action is to destroy the powers of the people uh, to to fulfill what, what God designed us to fulfill. In this case, uh, you have a God-given right to speak the truth. You have a God-given right to publish uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom uh, of assembly, uh, freedom of petition, and, and you know freedom of religion. All of those First Amendment five freedoms are ensconced in that issue as to whether someone can protest outside uh, of an abortion clinic and and uh, be free to do so, not be locked up and arrested. Uh, but the federal government has uh, way overstepped its boundaries on on that uh, that whole front. Well, consider uh, what a new constitution would do. One of the major things that we we talked about is the second level of um, documentation, if you will. And one of the the specific items in that is a definition of terms. Mm -hmm. So you may come up with a new term that, you know, could be interpreted, but if there's a flexible mechanism for amending that second level, uh, perhaps less rigid than uh, amending the first level, you could get a, an ongoing definition of every term 
and yes. he completely shut down Humpty Dumpty. Right. You know, basically <laughs> said, yeah, when I use a word, it means exactly what I mean it to be, and nothing else. And the key issue here is who's got the power? No, that's right. And, and actually, I think the Marxists understand that perfectly because they've gone about in their attempt to take over our society and redefining all the significant terms. Because if they can redefine the terms, then they get to frame the debate. And obviously, they frame the debate in their favor. And because they've changed the meaning of the terms, it's like, oh, all of a sudden, you, you, can't, you don't even have an argument. You're completely shut out. I mean, this is what happened in 2020. We didn't realize what was happening, but the World Health Organization, as well as other groups like CDC, redefined the term vaccine. Because those shots that they offered to people's arms, mRNA gene-altering shots, they were not vaccines by the traditional understanding and traditional definition of vaccine, but they changed the term and they changed the term of pandemic, you know, and, and they reduced it to such a level that they could, they could declare pandemic of anything. Uh, so when they change terms, they're actually taking power to themselves. Just, just as you said, like Humpty Dumpty said. You know, basically, if you think of this, if you're able to change the language at will for your own political purposes, that's a decivilizing uh, mechanism. Ultimately, you will drive uh, a society into chaos and to barbarism because there are no rules. Um, definitions create rules. And thank God for those rules. Amen. And our founders, by the way, if we want to know what our founders meant by words, the best source is to go to Webster's 1828 dictionary, because that dictionary, the first American dictionary, by the way, to find words that were in use at that time. And the word meaning of those words was the meaning at the time of the founding of our country, 1776. So uh, it was after 1820 that we began to see some vast changes in the meaning of words. And again, lies were being told with uh, uh, using using redefined words and actually sometimes uh, just, uh, you know, the, the good old propaganda. You tell a big lie and the bigger the lie you tell and the more often you tell, people actually fall for it and believe it. You know, the, like the lie that we're a democracy. <laughs> yes. Ask the average person on the street, what form of government do you have? And they'll tell you we have a democracy. And then we look at our founders, they abhor democracy. They said, no, 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 that's the worst form of government. We don't want that. We are a republic, a constitutional republic. And to restore that republic, it takes we the people. Uh, it's not on autopilot. We the people have to study these materials. We have to understand these principles and we have to act upon them to take back our republic from the Marxists, from those who want to destroy our God-given rights. And really, that's what we exist here as uh, we, the people, the Constitution matters. Uh, we exist to create that groundswell grassroots movement across our nation where people recover this uh, founding view of law and government and make corrections necessary to restore that republic. So go to our website, 1180wfyl.com and check on uh, the uh, Check on the podcast all the way at the bottom is our, our podcast. We the people, the Constitution matters. And join us again next Friday morning at 8 a.m. Invite your friends to join us. We the people, the Constitution matters. 